Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to Sonobis Energy's second quarter results. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session. You can join the queue at any time by pressing star one. Members of the investment community will have the opportunity to ask questions first. At the conclusion of that session, members of the media may then ask questions. Please be advised that this conference call may not be recorded or rebroadcast without the express consent of Sonobus Energy. I would now like to turn the conference over to Ms. Sherry Wendt, Vice President, Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Ms. Wendt. Thank you, Operator, and welcome everyone to Sonobus's 2021 Second Quarter Results Conference Call. I'll refer you to the advisories located at the end of today's news release. These describe the forward-looking information, non-GAAP measures, and oil and gas terms referred to today, and outline the risk factors and assumptions relevant to this discussion. Additional information is available in Synovus's annual MD&A and our most recent annual information form and Form 40S. All figures are presented in Canadian dollars and before royalties, unless otherwise stated. You'll find our updated guidance posted on synovus.com under Investors. Alex Porbet, our President and Chief Executive Officer, will provide brief comments and then we will take your questions. We ask that you please hold off on any detailed modeling questions and instead follow up on those directly with our Investor Relations team after the call. And if you could please keep to one question with a maximum of one follow-up. You can rejoin the queue for any other questions. Alex, please go ahead. Thanks, Sherry, and good morning, everyone. First off, let me see, say how great it is to see vaccination rates continue to rise in Alberta and across Canada. However, we know that COVID-19 hasn't gone away, and I assure you at Synovus we're not letting our guard down. With restrictions easing, I know I'm looking forward to life getting back closer to normal, and the health and well-being of our workforce and our communities uh, remain to company's priority. As we modify protocols at our operations, we'll continue to follow public health guidance and to work closely with governments, health authorities, and industry to protect our people. Safety is foundational to how we operate. We're working diligently to finish integrating our safety systems after closing the Husky transaction at the beginning of this year. Our goal is for Synovus to be a top-tier safety performer, and to achieve this, we prioritize safety above all else. So turning to the second quarter, we continued to build on our first quarter results with strong operations delivering even better financial performance. If you heard our last conference call, we communicated that if you added back the transaction-related costs that impacted adjusted funds flow in the first quarter, our adjusted funds flow would have been nearly $1.5 billion and free funds flow nearly $1 billion. Now, in the second quarter, that performance is more than played out, with our adjusted funds flow hitting $1.8 billion and free funds flow of $1.3 billion. 
Establishing this cash-generating power of the combined company in only our second combined reporting period, I think, reinforces the strength of the combined portfolio, and we expect this to continue in the second half of the year, assuming forward curves hold. Looking at net debt and deleveraging, we reduced net debt by almost $1 billion in the quarter, and we expect an accelerated pace of deleveraging in the third quarter and through the back half of the year, again, assuming commodity prices and foreign exchange rates continue to hold. The $1.3 billion in free funds flow went towards the balance sheet, and we also had the benefit of an unrealized foreign exchange gain on U.S.-denominated debt. However, this was partially offset by a change in working capital of about $389 million. The working capital build was driven mainly by the impact of higher commodity and refined product prices on inventory and accounts receivable, as well as increased inventory volumes. The accounts receivable at the end of June will benefit July cash flow, which should help accelerate deleveraging in Q3. Speaking to the inventory build now, as U.S. refinery utilization ramped up in the second quarter based on higher refined product demand in the third quarter, downstream inventory volumes increased. We also utilized our midstream storage capacity in the quarter to capture higher prices in the third quarter rather than take discounted pricing resulting from apportionment on the Enbridge mainline in June. We've ramped up our rail program in Q3 to capture more attractive pricing in the U.S. Gulf Coast. Asset sales will also accelerate, reaching $10 billion in net debt. During the second quarter, we closed our sale of the Martin Hills Gore for $100 million. In June and July, we reached two other agreements to sell asset packages and conventional for additional proceeds of $110 million, which will appear in the third quarter. We also have another, a number of other potential asset sales we're working in earnest. We continue to expect cumulative asset sales proceeds in the many hundreds of millions of dollars in 2021. Assuming the forward curves play out, we have our net debt target of $10 billion or under $10 billion well within sight in 2021. And once we're in range of that $10 billion mark, there will be room to consider other forms of capital allocation including increasing shareholder returns. And I just want to make the point that we very much recognize that our share price is in a range that would represent compelling value for potential share repurchases. I'll turn now to the operating results this quarter. In the upstream segment, we continued the production strength established in the first quarter. Overall production was about 766,000 BOE per day, nearly in line with Q1. And that's even with turnarounds at Foster Creek, Sunrise, eight of the 11 Lloydminster thermal projects, and three of our conventional natural gas processing plants in the quarter. Foster Creek production was down in Q2 due to the turnaround already mentioned and unplanned operational events as a result of some treating issues at the plants. This impacted production into July. However, the team's quickly incorporated learnings to adjust, and Foster Creek has been back to running at full rates since mid-July. And it, I think it's really worth pointing out that this production includes four new well pads with some of the highest production rates we've ever seen at Foster Creek. And basically, if you think about that treating issue we had, uh, we basically had to adjust for bringing in larger volumes than we've ever had before at Foster Creek. 
which I, I think is actually a pretty nice issue to have. Christina Lake exceeded its own solid and steady operating performance, delivering over 230,000 barrels per day of production. That's almost 3.5% higher than its already strong first quarter production, with the increase reflecting new wells coming online in the quarter. Turning to the Lloyd Minster Thermal Projects, not only were the turnarounds there well executed, we also beat the record quarterly average production rate we achieved in the first quarter, averaging overall uh, almost 98,000 barrels per day. And you know, I, I would just make the point that you know, overall, coming out of the turnarounds, you know, we're seeing upstream production now consistently exceeding 800,000 uh, barrels of oil equivalent per day. And I think that's a pretty good testament to how the assets are operating. Um, driving the company's 2.1 billion total operating margin for the quarter was a 1.4 billion contribution from oil sands, reflecting strong realized pricing. Oil sands operating costs increased somewhat relative to the first quarter mainly due to the turnarounds I mentioned and increases in ECO pricing and other commodity-linked costs. Looking at conventional, production was also up about 3.5% relative to the first quarter. This reflected the addition of new wells coming online in the second quarter and included production impacts of the three turnarounds mentioned earlier. Our offshore operations were a really strong contributor to free funds flow, delivering operating margins of $340 million in the quarter, with operating margin totaling almost $700 million so far this year. That roughly translates to about $600 million in free funds flow from the offshore business so far this year, a really significant contributor to our deleveraging efforts from that high netback production. Moving to downstream segments, in Canadian manufacturing, the Lloydminster Upgrader and Asphalt Refinery continued to deliver reliable operating performance with an, with an average utilization of 94%. Canadian manufacturing operating margin of $189 million in the quarter was more than twice the segment's operating margin in the first quarter. This reflected a much stronger average refining margin of nearly $30 per barrel in the second quarter with asphalt refinery sales increasing alongside the start of paving season. The increased operating margin also included $55 million in revenue for settlement of a customer contract at the Bruderheim Crude by Rail Terminal. In U.S. manufacturing, demand for refined products continued to rebound, and so too utilization, averaging 87% in the quarter, recovering another 15% from the first quarter. This increased utilization included turnarounds and other outages at a few of our U.S. refineries during the quarter. While throughputs were stronger and market crack spreads were higher, operating margin of $96 million in the second quarter was only slightly higher than the first quarter of this year. This was mainly due to the average cost of RINs increasing about 45% to over $8 per barrel quarter over quarter, hindering net crack capture and higher feedstock costs due to the increased WTI benchmark price. We expect stronger results from U.S. manufacturing in the second half of the year as the demand recovery for refined products continues and utilizations continue to increase. Building on the strength of upstream production in the first half of the year, we've updated our 2021 guidance, increasing total production guidance 
by about 2% at the midpoint while holding our total capital budget to the $2.3 billion to $2.7 billion range announced in January. Since coming out of the turnarounds at the oil sands assets, as I said earlier, we've seen many days where company-wide production has been over 800,000 BOE per day. We expect production performance for the second half of the year to be stronger than the first half, and this is reflected in our updated guidance range of 750 to 790,000 barrels per day. And reflecting our confidence in the value we've been able to add at the Lloydminster Thermal Project so far this year, we've included an additional 10,000 barrels per day of expected production from the Lloydminster Thermals for the year. Our updated capital guidance includes an additional $100 million of capital allocated to the oil sands, primarily for accelerating some of the work we've been doing at the Lloydminster Thermals, including capital allocated towards the completion of Spruce Lake North, as well as carrying out some redevelopment wells at Christina Lake. We'd made an offsetting capital reduction in the downstream segment, which reflects efficiencies identified across the portfolio. We've slightly increased our guidance ranges for operating costs at oil sands assets this year, including Foster Creek and Christina Lake. These changes reflect increases in ACO pricing and other commodity-linked costs with our non-fuel OPEX remaining on track to our original guidance. While operating costs for the Lloyd Thermal Projects will have these same impacts, they have been more than offset by the efficiencies we've achieved there through application of Synovus's operating strategies and related SOR reductions. As a result, we've brought operating cost guidance down for the Lloyd Minster Thermals. We've also reduced our operating cost range for conventional, reflecting some efficiencies we've been able to achieve there and asset sales. I'll take the opportunity to note today uh, that we have a major turnaround planned at the Limer Refinery this fall. This is a once in every five years event that we've planned for and was always included in our full year guidance. But something to keep in mind is it will impact Lima in late Q3 and into Q4. Returning to the guidance updates, we've also reduced our integration cost guidance by 100 million for 2021. While we still expect total integration costs related to the Husky transaction in the range of 500 million to 550 million over 2021 and 2022, we've adjusted timing such that the remainder is now expected to be spent in early 2022. This doesn't impact our forecast uh, pace of synergies capture. We remain on track to realize at least 1 billion of synergies in 2021 and to reach the annual run rate target of 1.2 billion by the end of 2021. The only change is that we're just spending a little less than we expected this year to do it. On the ESG front, we're continuing to take bold action to address emissions. Last week, we announced we'll be buying solar power produced electricity and the associated emissions offsets from a partnership between the Cold Lake First Nations and Elemental Energy. This power purchase agreement will put 150 megawatts into Alberta's electricity grid in southern Alberta and help mitigate our scope to emissions. It also reinforces our longstanding business relationship with the Cold Lake First Nations. And last month, we were one of five oil sands companies that launched the Oil Sands Pathways to Net Zero Initiative. Our goal is achieving net zero emissions from our operations in, by 2050, while supporting Canada's efforts to meet its Paris Agreement commitments 
and net zero aspirations. We continue to work with the federal and provincial governments to advance the funding and policy support needed to implement the emerging technologies that will enable zero emission oil sands production. As a company, we're committed to global climate leadership. Later this year, we'll be reducing the new targets for our combined company's focus areas, climate and GHG emissions, water stewardship, biodiversity, indigenous reconciliation, and inclusion and diversity. I look forward to sharing those with you. So in closing, I think this quarter has again demonstrated the operating strength of the combined portfolio and the free funds flow capacity of this business moving through the year at current strip. As these results reinforce, we have the benefit of best-in-class assets and we're building on our track record of asset reliability and low-cost structure. With the first half of 2021 behind us, we're even more confident that we will deliver at least $1 billion in synergies this year and reach our targeted $1.2 billion in annual run rate synergies by the end of this year. We're running a lot more balanced business since a Husky transaction along with expanded market access. We have greater stability of cash flows through the cycle, lower break-evens, and less risk on our deleveraging track and on the path to enhance shareholder returns. We're within range of our interim net debt target within 2021, and we expect to increase our pace of deleveraging in the third quarter, and we believe there are clear opportunities to do so. So with that, uh, I'm happy to take your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, you can join the queue to ask a question by pressing star one. We will now begin the question and answer session and go to the first caller. Your first question comes from Neil Baba from Goldman Sachs. Neil, please go ahead. Yeah, good morning, team. Congrats here on a good quarter. Um, I want to talk about the cadence of debt reduction. And, uh, and Alex, maybe you could talk about your confidence interval and in achieving the $10 billion level by the end of the year based on what you can see in the business. Uh, and talk a little bit about the working capital side of the equation. It was drag last quarter, a little bit of drag this quarter. How do you see that um, unwinding here, and can that help you uh, get to that level? Yeah, Neil, ha happy to uh, to do so. I mean, you know, when 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 we think about about net debt and we talk about that 10 billion target being being within range, you know, I what I would tell you is is when we look at this business for for the balance of the year, um, just on our base business. Uh, you know, once again, assuming that that uh, the strip remains more or less in place, uh, we are highly confident that we should hit that 10 billion target uh, within the end of the year. And and I would say that completely ignores the impact of further asset sales. And I've I've said it before on these calls and with investors, uh, we are really laser focused on on those non-core divestitures and. I expect uh, that they will continue uh, to accelerate that pace. So, so uh, our confidence on the 10 billion is is really strong. You know, with with respect to the working capital, maybe I'll hand that over to Jeff, and uh, he can give a little bit of color. John may want to jump in too. Yeah. No. Hey, good morning, Neil. And I I think the confidence here, and if you look at the uh, the working capital build for the Q, which there's about 400 million, and you think primarily uh, that's largely price-related, as we we saw the price impacts here in, in oil rise. If you think WTI, kind of from you know month average March to month average June by about 10 dollars a barrel, 
So we saw an investment in, in inventory. And we also built ver uh, volumes in and around the U.S. refining, which gets to the utilization increases that Alex was talking about, as well as building in and around upstream, uh, given the apportionment, we could build inventories and, and uh, you know, optimize commercially throughout our infrastructure. And I think that reinforces our confidence to getting to under $10 billion. I think it sets up and reinforces the utilizations running up in the refineries, the integration benefits, and, and you can start to see it really in, in the realizations uh, coming through next quarter. And uh, so we're quite, quite confident. I think the inventory build and working capital build reinforces that confidence. All right. Thanks, Jeff and Alex. So the follow-up is just on asset monetization. So two comments there. One, how do you think about Lee One in the context of it? Obviously, that is the biggest nut there, but it's been a really profitable asset. And we would argue the LNG balances look pretty tight in Asia, and so there, there's a lot of value in that asset. And then uh, the couple hundred million dollars of, of, uh, of smaller, um, you know, singles and doubles. Talk a little bit about um, what are the logical assets around that, and how should we think about the timing? Sure. You know, when when you, you talk about Asia Pack and, and Neil, I, I think you're quite right to kind of uh, draw attention to the, the free cash flow generating capability of, of that asset. Uh, it, it's been performing very well for us. I, I think it's also fair to say as we get to know that business better, you know, we are seeing some opportunities to actually continue to add uh, value. And, and yeah, as I've, as I've, I've said in the past, I, I don't think, you know, when you think about uh, you know, asset divestitures, my my kind of guidance to the market is, you know, as I said, we are really focused on this, but I think people should think about divestitures largely, though not entirely, uh, coming out of the conventional business and being North American focused. Uh, you know, the 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 Asia Pac business uh, for us is something that that we really want to spend a good good amount of time with, uh, really get to know our partners and the situation there. Um, so I don't see it as something where where we would be uh, considering in 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 the short term. Um, with respect to the the kind of singles and doubles, maybe Cam might want to give a little bit of color on that. Thanks, Alex. So, Neil, I think Alex has kind of touched on this already, but you know we are largely focusing most of our efforts in the conventional space, and I would say, you know, it's really about assets that aren't competing for capital inside of our portfolio. You know, assets that have slightly higher operating costs and assets just really aren't going to receive the funding. So I think as you go through that portfolio, I think that's probably the way to think about, you know, pieces that don't fit. You know, Alex did allude to this, but there are, um, we are looking at other um, parts of the portfolio too, not necessarily solely focused on the conventional business. So, um, you know, just for for good reasons, we won't be giving details around what those specifics are, but you shouldn't be surprised to see um, other areas that we're also focused on and looking at asset investors going into, uh, through 2021. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
Your next question comes from Greg Party from RBC Capital Markets. Greg, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Good morning. Um, could you frame maybe the role that you see uh, the Lloyd Thermals playing uh, in the years ahead? And and I'm also interested in uh, just other areas of, of either the upstream or the downstream portfolio where there's low-hanging fruit uh, that would benefit from, you know, just operational improvement. Morning, Greg. It's, it's John. Um, you know, your question is a really good one, and it's something that we've been actively working on, you know, prior to the merger and then in real earnest thereafter. And I think one of the things that we think um, with Lloyd Minster Thermals is there is still opportunity there for future growth, and there's still opportunity there uh, to improve the operating metrics um, in that area. And what you'll notice, I think, through the rest of the year is we'll spend, you know, a couple hundred million dollars there. Um, but in the background, we've been working on uh, mapping those assets, making sure we fully understand the reservoir. And then coming into next year, you'll see a fully baked capital plan together with a um, production um, forecast that goes with it. But we think that those are very economic and highly prospective assets. They were one of the things that we, we had our eye on. We think that, uh, you know, long-term, those assets will produce over 100,000 barrels a day and generate significant free cash flow. You know, the other areas that we have been working on in the background uh, would include Sunrise, Tucker, uh, Cold EOR on the thermal um, SAG-D side, as well as Cold EOR. And in those assets, we haven't put any capital into them this year. I think the cumulative capital would be about $5 million between the three assets, but we've kept production flat to growing there. But again, in the background, we've been working on mapping those reservoirs and building out our, our uh, uh, development plans and, and asset plans around that. And I think what you'll see going into 2022 is those assets as well are, are very economic assets at the bottom of the cycle and, and very prospective in terms of, of production and operating metrics. So we're really, really pleased uh, with the suite of um, assets that we've got from um, Husky and on the SAG-D side. You know, similarly on the conventional side, we've been working in areas like Ansel. We think there are opportunities there to improve the operating metrics as well as future prospectivity. Uh, and you'll see that again uh, going into 2022 with the um, um, budget that we're put forward. You know, the other area that I think is a, a kind of interesting for us, and we haven't talked a lot about, Alex has kind of tweaked on it, um, is Asia Pacific. And we see lots of opportunity there to increase uh, gas supply going into mainland China in our South uh, China Sea assets there. And, uh, you know, we are actively um, building out the Madura Strait in Indonesia as well. We think those are, are very profitable assets going forward as well. So when we kind of look at sort of the suite of assets that we acquired from um, Husky, we think that, uh, you know, a lot of these assets we would say are tier one assets and a lot of these assets are, are going to be core part of the assets uh, of this company going forward, all cash flow, you know, positive at the bottom of the cycle. Okay, that that's a good rundown. Maybe just as a follow-up, um, you know, your downstream is uh, more fractionalized, you know, you've got pieces, bits and pieces all over the place. Um, how are you thinking about maybe streamlining and consolidating some of those areas? 
um, you know, you know, similar to what I said before, you know, some of the assets that we we acquired from Husky, like the Lloydminster uh, upgrader and Lloydminster, um, you know, refiner, absolutely jam assets. Um, and then, you know, we think that there's a lot of opportunity in, in the other assets that we've got in the U.S., like Lima. Um, you know, one of the things we've been really clear about is that we think that this acquisition of Husky probably gives us the opportunity to rethink uh, some of our non-operated joint ventures and, and rethink how we want to consolidate or hold uh, our refining portfolio. We like the assets that we've got. You know, sometimes we just question whether or not they're held within the right vehicle. But I think, you know, all of this, um, you know, activity and this acquisition really gives us the ability to rethink that and address it in the near and medium term. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rick. Your next, que your next question comes from Phil Gresh from J.P. Morgan. Phil, please go ahead. Uh, yes. Hey, good morning. Um, as we look ahead uh, just a little further out, given um, the oil price environment and, and the path from the $10 billion of debt to the $8 billion of debt um, in 2022, how do you think about that balance between quickly getting to the $8 billion versus um, the potential to buy back shares, offset some of the, um, some of the effects of Conoco continuing to sell down, and or um, some of these capex opportunities yeah no it's 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 a, a good question phil and i i you know i mean i i think we've said it a million times that you know on our path down to 10 100 percent of free cash flow is is going to the balance sheet but you know one, once we hit 10 and with the pace of deleveraging that that we see possible over over the coming quarters you know, I, I suspect you're going to see the majority of that cash go to the balance sheet. But as I kind of I kind of said in my opening statement, we are very alive uh, to the value proposition that share buybacks represent uh, for for the company and our shareholders at at our present valuation. So I don't think anybody should be surprised uh, to see us be looking very actively at that as we sort of approach. Uh, the 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 ten billion dollar ten billion dollar level. Got it. And then anything on the capex side? Uh, you, you know, I mean, we've talked about this. We've talked about this before. Um, you know, I, one of the great things about doing this Husky deal, and John sort of alluded to it, is you know we we continue to you know like turn over you know rocks and and find diamonds and. And I, you know, I, I really think that what people should expect, I mean, we, you know, I, I don't see any large, large scale kind of phase expansions anytime in our near future because, you know, we, we have this really uh, incredible portfolio of kind of what I would describe as kind of brownfield opportunities, organic uh, opportunities just around the edges uh, to add uh, production at very, very attractive returns and, and at, at relatively modest capital. And I think that's really where you can expect to see a lot of our capital around those kind of things that John was referring to. You know, the the opportunity uh, around getting FCCL connected, you know, to the Lloyd complex, you know, that I would kind of put that in the category once again of a really, really, attractive opportunity with quite modest capital but 
those are the kind of things uh, that I, I think people should be thinking about. Yeah, and maybe I'd add to that, Phil. I think we've been pretty clear um, through this acquisition of what is required to keep production flat and keep our um, fixed plants in a safe and stable condition. And, and that number, you know, that we've floated quite publicly is around $2.4 billion. And, you know, what I would suggest is, is you shouldn't expect, a, you know, a right-hand turn from um, what we've done in, in the past in terms of capital budgeting going forward. It'll be something, you know, that probably looks very similar to what we've done this year when you, you know, see the budget for 2020. So, you know, I think, you know, as Alex said, you know, when you get to $10 billion, you know, clearly we still want to delever and we want to address shareholder returns. And I think it's a, it's a more modest investment in uh, – um, in the assets than you might be thinking. Okay, great. That's very helpful. One uh, kind of one-off question. Can you just remind me with respect to Superior, the pace of spending versus how the insurance proceeds come in? Is there any kind of um, timing variables to think about there? And I'll leave it there. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's Jeff here, uh, Phil. Yeah, I mean, the obviously the capex, and we've got around half a billion in, in the guidance this year, and and the insurance, we we expect it to be largely uh, largely cover the capex. You know, there's not a, a simple rule of thumb on cash receipt. I think uh, you know we sit down and, and work through uh, you know basically our invoices with them and go through all that review. So it, the receipt will be a little bit more lumpy, but uh, no change uh, to where we're at with that, and we still expect it to be largely covered. And it's just the timing will be a little bit lumpy, and it's not perfectly even flow with uh, with the capex. And and Phil, it's Alex. I, I I might just add my my team around this table are are regularly subjected uh, to to my uh, endeavors to accelerate that that uh, recovery on the insurance side. I, I think it is an obvious obvious opportunity for us uh, to really accelerate uh, the uh, the balance sheet recovery. So we are really focused as a team on on seeing those proceeds coming in so is it, is it fair to say you haven't gotten any of the 500 million yet oh no no we're you know we've uh if you think about uh uh the capex and and what we've received we've you know we've received you know an order of magnitude uh you know i'd say a, a few hundred million on on uh the property damage and then obviously business interruptions separate and, and well on our way on that over time so it's not perfectly weighted to year by year or anything phil but uh we're we're well on our way on on collecting those yeah okay okay thank you thanks phil ladies and gentlemen as one more reminder should you have a question please press star followed by one your next question comes from Manav Gupta from Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Um, hi. Uh, I just wanted to focus a little bit on Canadian manufacturing. The results were stronger than expectations. Uh, if you could help us understand what, what drove that so we can model this segment more accurately going ahead. Sure. Keith, what else? Yeah, Manav, um, you know, obviously we saw really strong uh, – uh, operating margins at our at our upstream, uh, sorry, at our manufacturing facilities in, in the Lloydminster area. Um, you know that was also included in that uh, was a uh, receipt of a payment from a contract for a customer that wanted to buy out of their contract at our at our Bruderheim Rail facility. So that's kind of more of a one-off event, and that was about 55 million dollars. So you know that might have been a bit of the lumpiness that you. Uh, that you weren't able to model in, in the quarter. 
Okay, uh, but even then, I mean, the earnings were pretty strong. So, like in terms of margins, uh, are you seeing those margins continue into the third quarter, even if you take out the lumpiness of that one-time contract? Yeah, I mean, if we had really strong operating performance out of both of those assets, uh, you know, uh, through, throughput at the assets was was high, and and margins were strong. We're really well connected. Uh, you know, Alex and John alluded to how how that industrial complex is very close on the value chain to our to our upstream production. So, um, you know, we're really happy with the assets, and and actually we're we're now heading into the. Uh, to the paving season, so uh, you know things are lining up well for the, the third quarter. Okay, a quick follow-up on the superior refinery. What we're seeing here is your upstream assets are doing really well, but the U.S. refining margins have generally struggled a little. There's a little bit of RIN exposure. So just wanted to understand, is Sonova still fully committed to the superior refinery rebuild? And, and if you could remind us, what's the value proposition of superior, please? Well, very much. Uh, we are very much uh, committed to uh, Superior, and maybe I'll I'll let. Uh, first thing I would say is we're in terms of the the project itself. We are very pleased uh, with how the project is doing. It it is a challenging project on a constrained site, and uh, everything uh, we are well advanced in the construction, and everything is looking very good. I'm really pleased. Uh, with progress today, but maybe I'll let John talk about sort of a little bit about where it fits uh, in our strategy. Yeah, so I mean, I've, you know, this won't surprise you, but you know, ever since Alex and I got here and, and Keith took over the downstream, one of the things we've been talking about is market access and needing to get uh, a global price for our heavy oil resource. And, and more recently, you know, we would. Um, translate that into the industrial logic of buying Husky, where we've actually bolted on a, a downstream business that consumes the molecules um, that we produce and protects us from um, location and heavy oil differentials. So the value proposition of um, Superior is really quite clear. This is a refinery that's going to um, consume about 47,000 barrels a day. 35,000 uh, barrels of that is heavy, so this is a refinery that's going to eat the barrels that we consume, and on the back end it produces a full slate of transportation products as well as uh, asphalt, and as you know, we are uh, a major asphalt producer in Western Canada, and this gives us exposure into the Minnesota and Wisconsin market. So there's, there's strong connectivity um, in terms of the industrial and, and company um, logic and strategy. The other thing I would say is this refinery is the first stop off Enbridge, and because of that, it allows us to uh, nominate uh, barrels onto the Enbridge system, which gives us more takeaway capacity. So that we think this is, you know, not only going to be a highly um, um, profitable refinery, but it's absolutely on strategy with us, and it's got a, a really nice marketplace to uh, deposit the the products that it produces into and as I mentioned before, is, is molecularly integrated to our feed slate. Great. My last question is, uh, can you comment a little bit on market aggress? Uh, when, when do you think Enbridge realistically could be in a position to start the line fill, and, and do you still see the line coming on somewhere late 21, early 2022? And I'll leave it there. Thank you. 
Yeah, thanks, Manev. Um, yeah, everything that we're seeing is lining up pretty constructively for WCS differential pricing. Uh, line three is forecasted, and, and we uh, we agree with this that uh, you know we will see that happen in the in the fourth quarter, later in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, coupled with that, um, you know, we actually think there will be a DRU startup in, in the in the imminent future, uh, which is another 50,000 barrels a day that will get consumed. Um, you know those two things, and and kind of current status of uh, where inventory levels are in in, uh, in Western Canada, kind of all is constructive for uh, relatively positive differentials uh, through the back half of this year. Thank you. Thanks, Manab. Your next que your next question comes from Manel Halship from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Uh, thanks, and uh, good morning, everyone. Alex, uh, you just mentioned getting Foster Creek, Christine Lake uh, connected to the Lloyd complex as a relatively attractive future, future opportunity. And, and, you know, this is something that you've talked about on a number of occasions in the past. And so my question is, are, are you in a position to elaborate on, on what that's going to look like in terms of scope of work, cost, and capital efficiencies? And if not, um, when do you think you will be? I mean, I, I, like, I, th I think we're pretty, you know, we, we've done a huge amount of work on it, uh, Menno, and, and we, we actually, there, there's a, there are a series of, uh, of capital projects, and I, I would really put it in, in the category of, of mo very modest capital, probably, you know, kind of in the $200 million-ish range over a few years, uh, and and really, uh, we we think those projects are going to uh, very that high high return projects, you know, c connecting FCCL production volumes uh, to uh, to the complex. And I'm just I'm, I'm probably a little early to go into too much detail, but you know that I, it kind of in that magnitude. And uh, maybe, maybe you know one thing. I mean, Keith, maybe you can talk a little bit about what we hope to achieve uh, by those projects. Yeah, Manu. Uh, you know, when we think about this, we have a, a world-class, you know, upstream resources sitting, you know, within 50-mile radius of of a very large industrial complex, and and historically, uh, those assets have consumed LLB, which typically fetch a higher price uh, in the global markets. Uh, so, you know, by converting um, both the upgrade and the refinery to other feed slates from Foster Creek or Christina Lake, you know, we think we will get margin expansion on the upstream barrels. Uh, we also think that we'll be able to recycle more condensate back into the province, and, you know, we're a, we're a very uh, uh, large consumer of condensate. So those two things coming together, um, you know, we also are, are partners in the HMGP midstream business, so, you know, the connectivity is there. So, you know, as Alex alluded to, we think for a, a modest amount of capital, we can, over the next few years, we can integrate those oil sands assets into those two industrial conversion assets and, and really generate more margin and recycle uh, a lot more condensate in the province, eliminating the need to import it from the Gulf Coast. Yeah, so and think about that, as, as Keith said, you know, over the kind of next one to three-year period. Perfect. That's all I had. Thank you. Thanks. Your next question comes from Harry, Harry Mateer from Barclays. Harry, please go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Um, so, first question is: You, I mean, you've been very clear about the 10 billion uh, net debt target, and then you know a little bit more open-ended about the timing of 8 billion. But 
Um, there's also an or lower uh, that's been attached to the $8 billion target. Can you just talk about what you mean there and, and what might drive you to delever even further? Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I like I, I, I think I would say, and it's probably best to think of that almost in a, from a philosophical perspective. And we, we you know, I think the, the events over the, the, the sort of four or so years I've been at Synovus have, have really hammered home to me the benefits in, in this industry of operating with an under-levered uh, balance sheet. Uh, you know, we very much uh, want to, to have a debt level that puts us in the mid-triple-B range in, in terms of credit rating. And I think that uh, over time, you know, that probably would, would have us tending towards lower debt, all things being considered, than, than $8 billion. But at this time, you know, we, th- we think $8 billion is is a uh, is a pretty a pretty ambitious target that we think we can get to quite quickly, and uh, you know, and over time we'll we'll certainly be thinking hard about uh, taking it lower. But for now, we're you know the 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 uh, public target is eight billion. Okay, thanks for that. And then um, you know, credit markets and I I suspect equity markets you know tend to reward gross debt reduction a bit more than net debt reduction. So. Can you just remind us how you're thinking about the balance between those and then, you know, whether liability management, which I know is something Synovus did in the past, you know, might that, again, be part of the toolkit to help crystallize some gross debt reduction rather than just running with uh, some extra cash on the balance sheet? Yeah, it's it's Jeff here. And and, and absolutely, we'll look at uh, at gross deleveraging. I think, uh, you know, we, we have historically, and I think we'll balance that and, and make sure that uh, we probably hold a little bit more cash. And it's, you know, not lost on us that I think there's, you know, Credit markets are attractive, but we'll we'll look and, and balance everything out and make sure that we've got the balance and and tenor that uh, we balance our liquidity and uh, and look to manage down uh, over time uh, the the gross debt. But uh, we'll be balanced through all of that. Okay, thank you. Right, thanks, Harry. There are no uh, further questions at this time. I'll now turn it back to Mr. Porbet for closing remarks. Well, everybody, uh, I uh, I know we're uh, looking at the start of a long weekend and in the in the middle of summer, and we very much appreciate uh, uh, your interest in in the company and taking the time this morning. Uh, so, with that, uh, we'll sign off and uh, and uh, thank everybody for participating. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating and ask that you please disconnect your lines. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.